You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. This week you'll hear a conversation that I had with Jenny Schaefer. Uh, Jenny is a writer, a speaker. She's also a singer and a songwriter, which for somebody that can't sing at all, that always amazes me. Um, Jenny wrote a book called Life Without Ed, and she also wrote Goodbye Ed, Hello Me, and another book called Almost Anorexic. And today we talk about her recovery from anorexia, and we also talk about anorexia and PTSD, her experience there. And then anybody that listens to these podcasts regularly knows that I'm awful at staying on top. I can go on off on all sorts of different tangents, and we certainly get into plenty of those. We talk about, well, trauma and eating disorders, uh, but we talk a lot about um, perception and action in recovery. Then also we got onto um, exercise, actually, which um, is something that I'm very, very hot on and always enjoying talking about compulsive exercise in eating disorder recovery. The first question that I asked Jenny was to tell us a little bit about herself. Here's Jenny. I am Jenny Schaefer, and I feel like I have the greatest job in the world. I I really get to live my passions, which are writing, speaking, and singing. And so I've been doing that for well over 10 years now. And um, recently, well, about a year or so ago, I joined up with Eating Recovery Center, and I get to do the same stuff with them. So we actually just had a big event in my hometown in Austin where I got to meet with the community and sing a song and so I feel really blessed to have the job that I do. Probably like you, I know you're also living your passion. Oh, I, I know. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's a it's a highly intense job. I mean, I'm oh, yeah. basically texting people all day. I speak to, I, I email or, or text or talk to all of my clients every day at least once. And so oh, wow. but I can't tell you how amazing they are. And just things like, I have to tell you this because I know that you'll get it, but Yesterday, one of my clients, she got her period for the first time in 12 years. And it's just like, that stuff makes me cry. (laughs) I know. I know. I tear up much more in my older age. Um, I, yeah, I get touched all the time by people. I, now that I'm getting older, it's funny. I'll meet people who've read my first book, Life Without Ed. You know, they read it 12 years ago. So maybe that was when they're 10 and now they're you know, 22, and they're maybe graduating and becoming a therapist. And so I tear up when I hear moments Mm. like that. People who, you know, people really do get better. They really Mm do. Mm -hmm. And it's so cool when I get to see that transformation. And you, I mean, you get to see that with all the people you work with, but I don't get to see it in the way that you do so directly. So when I get to see it, it's super cool. Yeah. However way, it's when you you see somebody else go through recovery, and it's just those those first little sort of victories and oh this is a, this is going in the right direction this is working and it's, it's so it's a yeah you're right living the dream <laughs> I know I'll tell you what I wish I had someone like you when I was sick though <laughs> none of this none of this internet stuff existed to make it possible well, there wasn't even so text that's either. true isn't it it's very different it's so yeah different. and good I, and bad <laughs> yeah I mean I recovered you know outpatient and they had a great treatment team, including my doctor that I actually work with now, Dr. Ovidia Bermudez, as, is our chief clinical officer at our Eating Recovery Center. So that's sort of surreal that I work with my former doctor. <laughs> but the, the hard part for me was I was doing all outpatient. So I would come home and I was living alone and I didn't have anyone to eat meals with or to 
right. check in with via text message because text message didn't exist. Right. So, so what did you do? What, what, what did you find helped in those circumstances? Well, back in back in the day, um, we did have email, and um, I had a great support group. I, I really believe in the power of support, and our support group was led by a therapist, and it was very pro recovery. And we had an email chain, and so really, I would send an email out to everyone on the chain, and most likely somebody would respond or pick up the phone and actually, you know, use it to call, which is not used much <laughs> anymore. But, um, but I would call someone. I mean, my I found for me the biggest way to the best way to avoid relapse was to not isolate and to connect personally with someone. And the best way was always to see someone face to face. But if I couldn't do that, phone or email and a man that that group really helped me the power of you know being in a group and I think that's why sometimes you know treatment programs can be so helpful for people because they see they're not alone and also with what you're doing you know you you've been through it and they see that they're not alone and there's other people out there but it's still funny not funny it's still kind of crazy to me to hear stories of how there's still so many people that think they're the only one out there that struggles and so Mm -hmm. we we definitely have a lot more work to do in education and advocacy and and I know we're all working hard to do that. Yeah, and you're right about the sort of other people out there. And what I think um, I see I see and hear a lot is, you know, we got the general eating disorder or anorexia information out there, but it's it's when we get into the nitty gritty details, sort of, you know, when when someone will say to me, "Oh, you know, I have these really weird timing issues around food, and I'm only allowed to eat at quarter past the hour, and if I miss that, then I have to wait." 30 minutes and eat a quarter to the hour and they they haven't ever told anyone that before because it seems so crazy and I'm sort of like oh yeah I had a similar rule like that as well and here's how I broke it (laughs) and it's just those things that make people feel like oh wow okay (laughs) it's not just me um and they're so common as well it's it's incredible oh so I had similar rules like that as well for sure it's so great I'm so grateful not to have those anymore (laughs) I don't know how I did it no, I know. It's so, such a high maintenance is what it is, I tell you. It was super high maintenance, I'll tell you. It was. So we were going to talk about um, reality, eating disorder recovery and reality. You know, we were sort of going, emailing back and forth about this and, and you wrote about um, <laughs> eating disorder recovery requires hope and action. Yes. <laughs> this is something I learned the hard way. And I kind of explain it this way. I mean, you know, in the beginning of my recovery, of course, I did not have hope. But the good news is when I, once I got connected to a treatment team and a, to my support group of women and men who had recovered and or were recovering, I started getting some hope. And so at first, in early recovery, I thought, well, maybe hope is kind of the thing that's going to pull me through. And and what I learned is hope is extremely necessary. It's it, For me, it was a requirement. But what I also learned is I couldn't just have hope. So if, if you combine hope with doing nothing it doesn't get you to recovery and by that I mean like I I would go to support group for instance and I would have a very hopeful session or go to therapy or I'd write in my journal about hope and I'd write in my journal about what I plan to eat tomorrow you know but I wouldn't actually eat today so what I learned is I need to not only have hope which fuels recovery but I need to combine that with real solid action so not just going to therapy but leaving therapy and then actually applying the things my therapist taught me, you know, going to my dietitian and then actually doing what she said or going to support group and taking the wise advice of of those people who were in my group. And I'll tell you what, for years and years, 
I thought I'm going to do the action part when the action part becomes easy. But you know, the truth is the action part becomes easy by doing the action over and over and over again. So that's one thing I've, I've really put together in my own story is, you know, hope plus action. That's how we all get better. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. As, as you said, I, I, I spent four years in recovery in inverted commas, where it was always, I'm going to eat more tomorrow and I'm going to exercise less tomorrow and right. tomorrow never comes. And it exactly. never feels, it never feels like the right moment either to just eat more or exercise less, or at least it didn't do for me for four years. I was waiting for the right moment. Oh, for sure. And I had struggled too with all that and also binging. And so I would say, well, well, just tonight, I'll binge tonight and I'll start over tomorrow. Mm. Starting tomorrow, I won't binge again. Or I would even do the geographical cure. You know, I'll move apartments. And when I get into this new apartment, I will never binge again and I will never restrict again. This will be my recovery apartment. But of course, buying a new apartment didn't recover. You know, that wasn't the action I needed. <laughs> the action I needed was the hard stuff. And that's really, I compare it, sometimes I emailed you today about my skydiving story. And I compare it a lot to jumping out of a plane. And I have a bit of experience with that. I actually, several years ago, I attempted to jump out of a plane uh, the first time. I went up in a plane in New Zealand. And they gave me my my little harness and they taught me what I was supposed to do and they attached this big guy to my back. He was the tandem master and and then they said, Okay, jump and I was terrified and I I hung on to the pilot seat and I said, No way. And somehow I had, had this just thought that if you go to the skydiving place and they give you all the tools and you get in the plane, somehow you're gonna end up jumping mm-hmm. out. <laughs> But the truth is, you have to actually say yes, and then you have to trust that your parachute will open. And man, that is so much like recovery to me. I feel like I was in the recovery airplane for so long. I had the tools, I gathered them for years, and I was in the recovery plane, and my treatment team finally said, you know, Jenny, you got it, it's time to jump, to have some faith, take that leap of faith, the parachute will open. And I'll tell you what, I said over and over again, I will jump only when you prove to me that the parachute actually will open. And I waste a lot of the, I wasted a lot of time doing that. And wish what I wish I would have done is jump sooner. But now all I can do is encourage people to take that leap of faith. It is a leap of faith. It's you know the jump and then hope that the net appears. And and if you're doing what you need to be doing in recovery, it does appear. But the truth is, with that first skydiving attempt, I actually did not jump, and I went down in the plane with the pilot. But I I actually then I decided okay I'm going to do this, and so I applied kind of eating disorder recovery skills to skydiving. What I've learned is that all this stuff we learn in recovery, so much of it's not about food and weight. It's about motivation, resilience, and never giving up. So I applied those things I had learned to skydiving. And five days later, I'm happy to say I did jump out of the plane. (laughs) But it took me actually getting in the plane and making a decision that the only way out is to take the action and to jump. No one's going to push me. And in recovery for a long time, I I wanted people to push me. Mm -hmm. But but they're not going to do that. I mean, people can walk beside us. That's what you do with your clients right but but you don't push them along we just walk we can walk with people and so yeah that's what I I share that story a lot and a lot of people relate to that because oftentimes I'll say you know where are you in the recovery plane are you are you at the gate kind of almost jumping are you attached to the pilot seat like I was or or some people aren't even in the plane yet and I remember that in my life I stared at the recovery plane for a long time and said no way am I getting in there It, you never feel ready. I mean, oh, no, I, yeah, never, almost never. everybody says to me, I just don't think I'm ready. And I say, well, good, because you don't need to be. You just need to, <laughs> you just need to do it. <laughs> That's such a great point. I love that. 
you never you never feel like you're ready there's never enough and I did that whole thing of um thinking about it or and oh yeah I didn't really I didn't have a, a team as such so I didn't really have a, somebody to ask questions or uh, it was more for me avoidant but I see a lot of people that they they want the reassurance they want to know they want to know exactly what weight they're going to end up at and they want to know exactly how long it'll take to get there and they want to know exactly how many pounds they'll gain a week and there are no answers to those questions you just right. have to find out. There's only one way to find out. And, and like you said, until you actually start eating and until you actually start the action, you won't know. You, there's only way, one way to find out. Yep, but you're so right. There's only one way. And, and aside, you know, from all the body image and food stuff, it's also like I remember thinking, well, you know, what if I jump out of this plane? What if I do this action? And, and what if I hate my life anyway? You know, I'd rather be miserable and stuck in my eating disorder, which I know and I get, than be miserable in this other life that might be worse. I wondered, will I have friends? Will I be successful at my job? Will I, you know, the on and on and on. My brain, I've, I've learned my, I was one of those anxious people born into the world. Um, no surprise there, I'm sure, for people listening. And a lot of us with eating disorders tend to have anxiety. And man, my anxiety would just go all over the place. What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And again, like you said, I mean, you're, we're never ready. We just have to take that leap of faith and surround us with people who we love and who trust us, who we trust and and jump. And sometimes we jump and, and maybe it doesn't go so well the first time. And then that means you get back up and you do it again. Because I'll tell you what, I, I essentially jumped out of my recovery airplane a lot of times. It took a lot. <laughs> and finally, finally it all set in and I finally, it clicked in and I got it. But it took a long time. I think that's, it's really hard. People with eating disorders, we, it's a, it's a matter of not months to recover it's often to fully recover it's often a matter of years right and yes. so that's that's a challenge but of course everyone's different I mean my story is different than yours than everyone who's listening it takes all people all different lengths of time to recover but I would just encourage your listeners as you often say you know don't quit keep doing it keep doing it don't give up you might have to jump out of the plane a couple of times but every time you learn something and I think that's what actually keeps us robust in recovery is from the failures because I learned how not to do things. That was very important. Oh, yes. So true. That was, yeah, most of my early recovery was actually all about that, learning what what not to do. And that's the only way I made it through all the relapses. I, I just had to tell myself, okay, what did you learn from this? What did you learn from this? And search and search until I could find something I learned. Because otherwise, I just felt so down and depressed. But but you're so right. I mean, it, it is such a learning process. And in the end, and I think I emailed you this, and it, it really makes us all stronger. I mean, I think my recovery is so strong today because I fell down so much. And, and, and now I'm able to conquer other things in life. Like I mentioned, and I've been writing a lot about PTSD. That was something I struggled with. Years after my eating disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, that was hard, but I was able to apply, again, those kind of eating recovery skills, not the things about food and weight, but but again, the resilience, the never giving up, the motivation, the support, and to recover from PTSD. I also got married and divorced in three years. I would not recommend that. That's pretty stressful, but I was able to go through that without relapsing. I mean, that's the key. I think I like people to know that 
full recovery is possible. That, that doesn't mean I never have a negative body image thought, but that means that I, I don't have my eating disorder walking around with me today. In fact, what I've learned is I actually have less negative body image thoughts than my friends who've never had eating disorders because I actually got to learn all this stuff and that most people never get to learn. So it's it's pretty sad to me sometimes when I go out with people I know who who never had eating disorders and they're talking about the calories and what they need to lose and weight and and I don't do that anymore. So I really think those of us who, who really dive into recovery and even families who learn a lot about it, we can actually become stronger and healthier with food and, and with weight and balance and body image than, than most people ever get the opportunity to be, to have, you know, I mean, I think everyone should get the chance to, you know, have sessions with you, whether they have an eating disorder or not, everyone could learn. I think that one of the, the greatest things that I feel I sort of know about my brain and about myself uh, uh, having recovered from anorexia is that what I think is reality is often not reality. And my perception, my perception creates my reality, but sometimes that perception is bang out of whack. (laughs) That's interesting. You said that because I, Totally agree. And and I've noticed, well, particularly when I'm, I've, I've noticed I'm obviously prone to developing various mental health challenges like eating disorder, anxiety, depression, PTSD. But something I noticed that was very similar to the eating disorder as well as PTSD and even depression too, and heck anxiety as well. But it's almost like you put on these glass, these like distorted glasses, you know, with the eating disorder, I didn't see myself correctly with PTSD, with those glasses on, everything was out to get me. Everything was a danger with anxiety, similar thing, you know, every, everything's bad. Everything's going to hurt you. And um, depression, of course, everything's depressing. So I've, I've learned that when I'm struggling in one of those moments, I, I have to realize I have these glasses on that are distorting my reality and I have to start trusting other people's reality. And, oh, in my eating disorder recovery, that was a hard one to get. <laughs> After I finally got it, I could start applying it to other things. But my therapist used to tell me that all the time. He said, you need to trust my brain over your brain. I thought, no way. But I finally I had to. Because the way our brains work is to make our reality seem very real. That's <laughs> what they do. Oh, yeah. Oh, completely. Because I can look back at pictures of myself when I was emaciated and just with horror look at myself and think, how did I walk around like that? How did I think that that was okay? And then it's like, well, because my, my perception was whack then. My perception was off. I, had, I perceived myself as okay at that weight. I wasn't. I wouldn't listen to anyone that told me otherwise. I thought the rest of the world was crazy and I was the only one that was sane. <laughs> um, but then with, with that, with the altered reception that uh, for recovery gives, I can see that, nope, nope, the rest of the world was absolutely right. And it was me that was out. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like you. I've, I go back and look at some photos as well. And I just can't believe that I didn't see it back then. It It, it really blew me away. The other day, I was looking at some old college photos and I did not even remember correctly in my brain. I mean, I, I was so off back then what I saw. It's, it's really unbelievable what our, how our brains can trick us like that. Let's, let's talk about PTSD a bit because I'm interested in your experience and what you think you learned. Oh, that's such, such a good question. I mean, I, 
and first of all, you're right. There, there is a connection between people who struggle with eating disorders and, and who have maybe trauma, PTSD. That doesn't mean everyone with an eating disorder has had trauma or PTSD. And my case was a bit interesting. What I learned, one thing I learned was that a lot of the traits and the temperaments that made me vulnerable to developing an eating disorder were the same traits and, and temperaments that actually made me vulnerable to developing PTSD later. So I, one, some of those traits are, exa example, high anxiety, like I referenced earlier. And high anxiety is something that obviously can contribute to an eating disorder, but also very much so to PTSD. Also being highly sensitive. I don't know about you, but I was born highly sensitive. And that also is something with that helped contribute to my PTSD. And even new research is coming out with perfectionism and PTSD. We still don't know the exact link, but of course with eating disorders, we, we've talked about that for years. The perfectionistic mentality might make someone more vulnerable to PTSD. So one thing I learned was just I have some traits that can contribute to both of this, these disorders. One big thing I learned was anxiety, I think, is the really the thing that fueled both of them. So what I learned in my life is I need to start working more on just anxiety at its base, at the base level, so that I don't develop another mental illness from anxiety because anxiety can fuel so much. But So my story was a bit different than some who struggle with both. So my, I actually experienced a trauma with an ex-boyfriend after I had already been in eating disorder recovery. So my trauma did not lead to my eating disorder or, or cause it or make me vulnerable to it. And that said, you know, it, trauma, we actually know trauma doesn't lead to eating disorders. What, what the mediator seems to be is if someone develops trauma and then PTSD and the symptoms of PTSD, those are the people who are actually more likely to develop maybe an eating disorder in order to deal with this, the complex symptoms of PTSD. But so for me, it was a little bit different in that I experienced sexual trauma with a boyfriend after I'd been in eating disorder recovery. Now I was not fully recovered at the time. So that's important to know, although I'd been in recovery, you know, five years in an, in treatment and really working hard. So of course, when the trauma happened, my eating disorder actually got worse. It kind of exacerbated. And, and what we often see is a connection between binge bulimic type symptoms in PTSD. So that's not to say that someone with restrictive anorexia can't have PTSD, but, but this research tends to show that bulimic symptoms more tend to be more tied to PTSD. And so I started engaging in more of those bulimic symptoms, but gratefully I had been in recovery a long time and a few things happened where I was able to really push through to fully recover from my eating disorder. And that was one, I wrote my book, Life Without Ed. I had already had it written. It just wasn't out yet. So when that came out, I realized, you know, I really need to get this together. I need to be accountable for, for my book and I want, I want to be authentic to it. And secondly, I broke up with that guy. So that was the really good news. And then thirdly, I actually got some early help for trauma. I saw, saw someone for EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. That's a evidence-based treatment for PTSD. That actually helped with some early signs. But what happened was I just got into I went into avoidance mode. So I decided, well, I'm just not going to date again. And as long as I wasn't dating, really my PTSD symptoms, which can be things like exaggerated startle response, um, high anxiety, avoidance can be a symptom of PTSD. Like I, I avoided dating. Um, other things can be negative cognitions and mood, hypervigilance. And I had all those things, but as long as I didn't date anyone, I was fine. So I actually, if you look at my second book, Goodbye Ed, Hello Me, there's actually quite a lot of reference in there to the fact that I said I'm, quote, bad at dating or at dating struggles.
Well, now I relook at that book and I'm thinking, well, I didn't have dating problems. What I had was PTSD that was undiagnosed. And it's very clear to me as I, as I see that book now, like, wow, that book's all about PTSD. I just didn't name it. I didn't know it. You know, so eventually I ended up getting married, which at that point I couldn't avoid dating anymore because I was married. And I'll tell you what, that's when the PTSD really resurfaced. And that was about 12 years after the trauma. So PTSD in my life really kind of lived underground for a long time because I was avoiding things. And that's one thing I've learned is that PTSD is fueled by avoidance. So if if you want to develop PTSD, avoid, avoid, avoid. What I mean by that is say you get in a car wreck. And if you, if you want to develop PTSD from car wrecks, which I know one does, of course, the best thing to do is never drive again because that's avoiding it. So you don't get the chance to prove to your brain that driving a car is not so dangerous. The, truly the best thing to do, which is obviously not to develop PTSD, is to get in a car the very next time you can, the next day, the next moment, the next minute, and drive and drive as much as you can to prove to your brain that not every car is dangerous. That just because this happened once, doesn't mean it's going to happen again. And so when I got married, my brain was telling me, oh my gosh, this is the same guy as before. He's going to hurt you. And PTSD just went out of control. I mean, I can't even believe the things PTSD led me to, to do, to say, to become. I became very angry and rageful. And as an eating disorder person back in the day, you know, someone struggling with an eating disorder, I was actually the always kind of the good girl that followed the rules. I would never yell at anyone had trouble expressing emotions and wow, PTSD came by and it really, it brought out a different side of me. And maybe I needed to let that part out, the rage. And, and that's not to say that everyone with PTSD has rage. I think that's also a myth out there that people tend, sometimes people think, well, people with PTSD are dangerous or they're mad and rageful. And, and that's just not true. I mean, a lot of people don't experience the rage part. I did. But oh, I learned a lot about myself. I learned, I learned that I learned again that I'm resilient. I'll, I thank my eating disorder recovery because if I had not had that, I think I would have given up on PTSD recovery because it was so hard. But luckily, I had been through an eating disorder, and so I knew that tools were out there. And, and lucky for me, I have thousands of friends who are therapists, so they actually they were able to point me in the direction of real help, real help that really, really worked, and I did a lot of prolonged exposure therapy, which is evidence-based, and the co cool thing now is I actually work with Insight Behavioral Health Centers, which partners with Eating Recovery Center. We actually have a site here where I live in Austin, a great city, and in Chicago, and so now I actually get to speak not only to our eating disorder patients at Eating Recovery Center, but I also get to share my PTSD story with our our mood anxiety patients. And I'll tell you what, I never thought either of those things would happen, but life really has come full circle. But it was a tough one. If you're out there struggling with PTSD, I just, I encourage you to reach out, learn about the symptoms. The first thing is most people don't even know what PTSD is. Learn about the symptoms and then get help. And there's all kinds of help. I didn't just do evidence-based treatments. Those helped me a lot, but I also do, did alternative things. I, I was in a support group. I also did acupuncture. I also did, took medication, which some are, are evidence-based for that, but I also did all kinds of things. I was one of my therapists said I should take little gentle walks and go hiking, and that was helpful. I I did a little more yoga. So it was a, my PTSD along with eating disorder was a big puzzle piece, and I had to put them together. I think that's why we get so frustrated. Is you know we think we have the puzzle, but then we realize oh we're still missing like five pieces. And it can be so hard, but luckily I found all my pieces. So I'm actually working on a book on PTSD, but man, it's going to take a bit of a bit to write it, but 
Um, but thanks for asking about it. I have a question. I have a couple of questions, actually. The, the first part is, as I'm wondering, did the diagnosis, because you said that in that in the in your second book, you can reread it and see that it was all to do with PTSD. You just didn't know it. I'm wondering how much just actually having that diagnosis helped. And but then I, I'm also then I'm also wondering um, if you could maybe define it a little bit and some of the symptoms in case there's anybody listening that's thinking, wait a minute, do I know what PTSD is? <laughs> well, first of all, for me, the diagnosis of PTSD really just pointed me in a direction of help. So it wasn't about getting a label or anything like that. It really was for me to realize, okay, I'm not crazy. Other people are out there that struggle with this and help is available. So that's to me what the diagnosis was. It wasn't about a label. It was about help. And what I actually did once I figured it out, and, and sadly, I mean, I wish the doctor would have told me about it, but I actually had to Google exaggerated startle response, which can be a symptom of PTSD. And I, when I Googled that, PTSD came up. And then I called one of my best friends who happens to be a Harvard psychologist, uh, Dr. Jenny Thomas. She was my co-author on my last book, Almost Anorexic. And I said, Jenny, think I have PTSD. What do I do? And then she gave me a book that listed all kinds of treatments. So I, again, I'm grateful. It's nice when you have therapists as friends <laughs> and that's when I actually got help. But, but for people who are unfamiliar, I mean, with the different symptoms, it can be so many things. I think that's why PTSD gets missed. Um, at one, some examples are in, intrusive thoughts. They call it kind of re-experiencing symptoms and re-experiencing symptoms can be very different for different people. Some people might have nightmares. I did. Some people might never have nightmares. So that can be a bit tricky. Some people have flashbacks. I did, but not a lot. I had way more nightmares. Some people don't experience flashbacks in the way I did. So there's, there's diff there's similar kind of clusters of behaviors. Like I said, like re-experiencing, but they can all look different. The other thing I mentioned earlier, and this is such a key is avoidance. I mean, avoidance really contributes to developing PTSD, but think about it in your own life, what is it you avoid? I noticed I avoided dating. I avoided intimate relationships. So that was fueling PTSD. But other people avoid things like getting in their car, or maybe they got hurt by a, a the parent growing up and now they they don't want to have kids of their own or you know there's different different ways people avoid so and another thing is that actually just got added to dsm-5 which is a book of diagnosis is um, negative thoughts or feelings um, kind of negative cognitions and mood what we often see is depression is tied to ptsd so i was extremely depressed with ptsd so for me i think i was sometimes diagnosed with depression when the truth is yeah i had that but it was really a part of ptsd so with that, people can feel isolated. They can be ir they can be um, negative, you know, kind of irritable, things like that. And so there's there's all different kinds of simple symptoms. Like I said, difficulty sleeping, maybe because of nightmares. Some people have aggression, but like I said, not everyone does. I'm hypervigilant. That's kind of like always on guard. And and again, not everyone has that. Some might have a startle response. Many have difficulty concentrating. So there's so many symptoms. I actually would recommend the the US um, Department of Veteran Affairs um, ptsd.va.gov has great great resources on that kind of list the criteria that I was just talking about and also on eatingrecovery.com we have different symptoms of PTSD related to our insight behavioral health program too but 
I think the key is people don't know what PTSD is because it can look so different. It really just can look so different. Um, maybe especially people who have struggled with an eating disorder, some of those symptoms that you described might feel quite normal. Um, not, not, oh, totally. Not normal, but you know what I mean, um, because I haven't had PTSD, but many of the things that you spoke about, I have had when, when I had anorexia, when I was very sick, a lot of those things that just... Because my high anxiety was so elevated, I think. Um. Oh, yeah, totally. You're so right. And and one, one thing, I mean, I didn't point out, but, you know, to get a diagnosis of PTSD, of course, they they call it uh, criterion A to be therapeutically specific, but I'm not a therapist, so I don't really need to do that. <laughs> but um, basically, you know, you have to experience the trauma, right? So that's one key. But but a key is that I like to point out is if you look at the official diagnosis of PTSD, they're going to say you have to have, you know, direct exposure to a trauma, witness a trauma, and they, they call it a certain thing, like you have to have had threatened death or threatened to be seriously injured or threatened sexual violence. And, and those, of course, are our traumas. But what I've realized in my studying a PTSD and going to conferences is, is many therapists and clinicians take trauma much broader than just what I just talked about. So for instance, there's a, a movement that talks about complex trauma, and that might be caused maybe not from a very specific event where you were threatened by your life, but maybe you just grew up in a household where you felt neglected and maybe it was emotional neglect. So maybe you weren't threatened for your life, but yet you lived a life where you felt neglected. Well, we're learning that that can lead to PTSD symptoms. So that's what's kind of tough with a label and why I don't like labels so much is because I would have read this criteria like a while ago when I was sick and I would have said, oh, well, that doesn't count. I, I don't fit into that. But 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 really, if you're struggling with those symptoms, if something in your life has, has hurt you, whatever it is, then it deserves help. I mean, who knows? People could might develop PTSD symptoms from having a really bad fall on their bicycle when they were five years old, you know? And if that's impacting your life, get help, you know? So I, I really hope people search their, their own lives and what's authentic for themselves and try not to think, well, what happened to me wasn't bad enough because I have a lot of people email me who say, wow, I never thought I deserved help because what happened to me wasn't bad enough. And if it's impacting your life, it was bad enough and you deserve help, whatever it is, even if it doesn't, it's not listed in some therapy book, if that makes sense. And that's the same thing with eating disorders, right? I mean, I know, I've, I don't know, like if you did this, but I would read criteria for eating disorders and I would also count myself out. Well, I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't have an eating disorder. So I think that's the hard part about labels is many of us use them to disqualify ourselves. Tell me about um, EMDR because you mentioned it and I'm interested. You yeah. said it was helpful. Yes, it was one of the earliest interventions I did. And I do think that helped to prevent PTSD from getting even worse. Um, so EMDR is, it's, it's an interesting treatment and, and some, there's some controversy about it. People argue a bit about how it works, but it's, it's definitely evidence-based and it has helped a lot of people, including me. But so what I did in my, my therapy was, EMDR, so it stands again for eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And so the key there is the eye movement part. So originally with EMDR, you actually would 
your therapist might hold their fingers and move them to the left and right and you would kind of follow the fingers. Well, I didn't actually do that. What we've learned is it's not about looking at fingers necessarily, but it's bilateral stimulation that seems to be a key part of EMDR, which kind of puts your brain almost in like a dreamlike state. So what my therapist did, I actually had headphones on and I would hear beeps in each ear. So bilaterally, you know, my left ear would hear a beep, then my right ear would hear a beep. And we'd go through and we'd talk about the trauma experience with with those headphones on. And it was a way to really help kind of process the trauma, almost like you might process traumas in your sleep, in, a dr- in dreams. You know how you process things, people go to sleep at night, they feel bad about something, they wake up the next day and they have some answers, you know, more clarity. So EMDR, many people, and my therapist explained it that way. And like I said, there's some controversy. Other people might describe it a different way. And and, you know, there's research being done all the time on it. But but what we we know for sure is that it is shown to help a lot of people. And so for me, it really helped. And something that helped, too, with it was that it just it faced that memory. I mean, I had regardless of having the bilateral stimulation, which I actually do think helped. But I was I was facing that memory that I had literally avoided in my head for 10 years. Or actually, at that point, I had only avoided it for three years. I got EMDR and then I avoided it for 10 more. But um, for three years, I, you know, I had really kind of put that memory in the back of my head because I thought that memory could hurt me. And what I've learned with PTSD is a memory can't hurt me. Yes, the trauma happened and that's very painful and, and that'll never go away. The trauma won't go away. But the memory, thinking about the memory cannot hurt me. But you know what? If I avoid that memory, it just gets bigger and bigger and takes control of my life in hidden ways. It kind of had tentacles and everything. And I really had, for me, I had to face that memory in order to get those tentacles out of my life so that I could see clearly. And there's different therapists that would recommend different things. I mean, I I did some somatic experiencing therapy, which is Dr. Peter Levine's work. And some of his work, actually, he believes more in kind of bottom-up processing, he calls it, instead of top-down. So top-down might be cognitive and then kind of moving from your head to your body. But um, Dr. Levine likes to work more with the body. And what is the body saying? Because we do know, I believe, the body stores the trauma. So he sometimes works with patients where they don't even have to really talk about the trauma story. So there's a lot of different ways to treat trauma and a lot of different controversies, honestly, in the trauma field on on how to treat it. I found that many different techniques helped me. I'm, in my book, I plan to write about all kinds of them because for me, it was a puzzle piece. I found good, helpful parts in all of them. Well, that sounds a bit like, um, what is it? Um, Vessel van der Kolk is that? Oh yes, yeah. I saw him speak at a conference. That's the tra- that's the trauma in your tissues guy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. His book's called um, "The Body Keeps the Score." Right, and it's a great book. I recommend that to anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I remember that from I used to teach yoga to people with PTSD. Oh, you did. That's I, I, I um trained in yoga for PTSD. Wow. And so the training is a lot about that, the movement side of it and the traumas in your tissues and moving it all out and things like that. But yeah. which is pretty interesting. Yoga was an important part of my recovery and I, I also worked with a yoga therapist who had trained in it. So it was very different than a yoga class I might take today in Austin somewhere. It was Oh, very different. <laughs> yeah, it was. We love we our whole group, we loved that that class. I was Yes, I used to go and teach at a local women's safe house and so um women who were in hiding from a abusive relationship and so people in very, very raw trauma states and um 
it was just fabulous actually <laughs> it was a fabulous that. experience to spend a couple of years teaching yoga to people like that so, you still teach yoga uh sp- sporadically sporadically um don't have that as much time for it anymore but i actually enjoyed it in that sense i've really enjoyed teaching people with with ptsd and then i went and taught commercially and it sort of wrecked it for me oh. <laughs> i have to admit <laughs> yeah I can see how that might happen. But um, it, it's it's fabulous diffused in the right way, that's for sure. And But one of the problems with yoga and eating disorder recovery is due to most of us or many of us having this compulsive exercise component, we don't use it the right way. I know, way. I know. Yeah. One thing we're learning in the field is we do we need to actually do a lot more research on on ex- the exercise piece and how how to bring it back in and, and for which people is or which exercise is appropriate and one thing we wrote about in my last book with Dr. Jenny Thomas the, um, the one we wrote almost anorexic was one of the research at that time was really showing it's it's not necessarily over exercising as it is com- compulsive is it compulsive or not so maybe it's maybe it's not as much as how often you do it but is it compulsive and why are you doing it? Do you have to do it every single day, even if you're hurt and it's raining outside, even if it's only 15 minutes, that's still a compulsive behavior. So, and actually there's a compulsive exercise test on my website that I built, built it off a research test, which was, these guys were great. They let me put it on my, my website. But if anybody is questioning their compulsive exercise, you can actually go to just jennyshafer.com slash CET, which stands for compulsive exercise test. So we are, we do have research, but we, we do need, I think we need more. I, yeah, I actually, because I, I've been writing a lot on exercise recently. And so I've been I heard thinking, about that. And, actually. and yeah, there is actually quite a lot of research that shows us that exercise is a real problem. It's sort of 80% of people with anorexia compulsive exercise yet still. Yeah. I don't really think it, it's it's coming into treatment enough. Right. Um, and and what I learned therapy. what I heard about you doing which is kind of what I was referring to is like we don't I think you somebody told me you were the first one to write about kind of this um non-exercise exercise <laughs> low low level exercise and I mean and that's what I think you know we really need way more research on is this low level movement standing up or whatever it is that I heard that you were I need to read that article that you wrote about that and there's actually science behind that so um really interesting um when you look at non-exercise activity thermogenesis or NEAT which is the kind of movement that we do when we're just moving around and in a normal person without the genetics for anorexia that goes that decreases as they go on a diet or as they go into a state of starvation however for people with anorexia genetics or eating disorders the desire for that neat that non-exercise activity thermogenesis movement goes up which then leads to further energy deficit which wants us to leads us to want to move even more so it turns into a vicious cycle and so there is there is um research out there uh, it's just not being utilized enough. I don't think it's not. Yeah. Do you feel like it's not really, it's not really filtrating into the treatment centers or, and I no. don't hear it a lot at conferences ever either much. No, it's super interesting. And it's, it's, it's difficult though, because it's so hard. The only person that really knows if they're moving their finger to reach for a pen on their desk because they're trying to actually 
it can be that small. I know from myself, I could make, it could be moving an arm, could be an intentional creation of energy deficit. And only we can really look at our motivations. No one else from the outside can look at that movement and say, was that necessary? Was that superfluous? Was that energy deficit related? We know, but only we know. So that I think is why it's also very difficult to um, treat and why it really has to come from the individual to call it out. But I've also found that most individuals, once they understand it, they call it out. They don't want to do it anymore. It's tiresome. It is. I know it is tiresome. You're so right. It's hard to come out of that denial, though. I remember when I first started over compulsively exercising, I didn't, I thought it was healthy. I thought that's what the U.S. government told me to do. <laughs> but, um, but I realized eventually it was, it was, it was very compulsive and it was getting in, in the way of my, my life, living my life and having friends. And so, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I hear it's been t- told to me that you're kind of at the forefront of getting the word more out about that. So thank you. So, um, Jenny, where can people find out more about you? Well, my website's jennyshafer.com, which is a little hard to spell. So an easier version is lifewithouted.com. <laughs> and um, really, um, my social media sites are all on there. And so I engage a lot on my Twitter page. It, it actually is me. People sometimes think I have like all these people helping me, but it's Love me. It. <laughs> and uh, and on Facebook, it's me. And it's all me. If you, if you see someone respond, it is me. And I actually love hearing from people on Facebook, on Twitter. So, and on my my emails, on my website, I love getting emails. So please, please feel free to reach out. I love and hearing quickly, from people. And just quickly, what are you looking forward to, to next? What's coming up this year and what's coming up for you? What are you working on and what are you excited about? Well, I'm excited about working on my new book that I was telling you about on PTSD. I'm also excited about a bunch of cool trips I having have coming up this year. I'm headed to Chicago soon to see our some of our programs in Chicago, but and also to speak at the first ever we're having an eating disorder anonymous big book workshop conference, which is pretty exciting. So that's something I'm looking forward to doing. But I just love travel, and I get to travel the rest of the year, so I'm pretty happy about that. (laughs) I mean, I never knew you could have a job that you just woke up every day and were actually really excited and just feel grateful, you know, especially from where I came from. I mean, 30, 20 years ago, I would have never thought an eating disorder treatment center would want to work with me because I was so sick, you know? Actually, I forgot to say, with with Eating Recovery Center, we actually have a new podcast. If anybody wants to check it out, called mentalnotepodcast.com and it really just shares recovery stories so it's different than yours really just one recovery story each time it's very very cool but I'm starting to get you guys are getting me into podcasts so I'm subscribing to yours and I will write you a review I would encourage everyone listening to write you a review as well five stars Big thank you to Jenny Schaefer for taking the time to talk to me today. I'll link to all of the things that she mentioned in the show notes to this episode. So we went over a lot there, and we started with the concept of um, hope and action in eating disorder recovery. Having hope is crucial so that you actually 
hope to recover and are motivated to recover, but the action part there as well is vital because you can do all the hoping that you want and nothing's going to happen unless you take action. And for many of us, action means picking up a piece of food, putting it in our mouth, chewing and swallowing and repeating again and again and again. Action can also mean not doing something. So in my case, action for me meant not going for a run every day not going for a run for weeks. In fact, I didn't go for a run for years when I went cold turkey on running. So action really means change action. When you know what it is that's holding you back, what it is you need to do. That's not to say it's easy though, is it? Yeah, it's terrifying, but I know that you can do it anyway. We also talked about trauma and eating disorders and specifically PTSD and some techniques that Jenny Schaefer found were helpful to her in recovery from PTSD, but namely recognizing the problem, looking for help, and working out what worked for her and what helped her, I think is, is what I got out of what she was saying most of all anyway. I really appreciate you listening to this week's podcast. Hey, Jenny said to go and give it a five-star rating. So who am I to disagree with that? (laughs) If you wouldn't mind, that would be great uh, if you feel so inclined. But otherwise, if you want to get in touch and let me know what you want us to talk about on this podcast, then do that. My email address is info at tabithaferrar.com. And you can also get me on Twitter. You can tweet at me. And my Twitter handle is at love underscore fat underscore I like to know what you want us to talk about. That's what we're here for. Appreciate you listening. Have a really good week. Bye.